Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslin. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. I am so thrilled about today's incredible panel because this is our last show of 2021. Returning to the roundup is Lene Erickson. Lene is the senior vice president of the social policy and politics program at Third Way. She also served on President Obama's advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. Lene, welcome back. Thanks. Happy almost new year. Happy almost new year. And returning to the roundup is highly sought after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend, Susan Del Percio. Good morning, Susan. It's great to see you. It's great to be with you today. Looking forward to ringing out the new year and starting hopefully a better one. On this week's roundup, we'll discuss the right wing's internal fight over the vaccine and what it might tell us about Trump's sway over the party. Republicans push to make school board races partisan and the worst political predictions of 2021 and our worst predictions for 2022. Finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus members, we'll look to the stars, contemplate our existence and talk about the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope and what we're going to see in space in the new year. If you're not already subscribed, you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get the plus segment and join our community. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's dig in. Twice impeached ex-president Donald Trump has drawn the ire of some of his most fervent supporters over the last few weeks because of his public endorsement of the COVID-19 vaccine and booster shots. Yes, Donald Trump endorsed the COVID-19 vaccine and booster shots. Last weekend, Trump was on stage with disgraced former news host Bill O'Reilly when he patted himself on the back for his administration's role in the vaccine rollout, which was met with boos from the crowd. Trump also refused to bash vaccines in an interview with right-wing provocateur Candace Owens. Trump noted that the people who are getting very sick and dying of COVID are unvaccinated 
and that the vaccine protects against serious illness. Two truths in the same breath. Conspiracy theorist Alex Jones went after Trump saying, the name Trump will be associated with pure evil, which it probably will be, but not for the reasons that Alex Jones thinks. Jones also threatened to, quote, dish all the dirt on Trump in retaliation for his endorsement of the vaccine. He even encouraged his listeners to move on from Trump. Ultra pro-Trump cartoonist Ben Garrison recently released a cartoon with Trump riding the big pharma vaccine bandwagon right next to the corporate media. Candace Owens told her Instagram followers that Trump came from a time before TV, before internet, before being able to conduct their independent research. She also said she doesn't believe that Trump, quote, uses the web to try to find obscure websites, as if that's a bad thing. Last week, a group of anti-vaccine protesters took to Trump Tower in Manhattan, where they insisted on not wearing masks and attempted to dine at a restaurant in the building without showing proof of vaccination, despite the local mandate requiring it. One protester even said, quote, Trump is a fraud if he enforces the vaccine requirement. Susan. <laughs> oh, <laughs> After- my. <laughs> <laughs> After every one of these dust-ups, There are always stories about how Trump is losing control of the base and the party is turning against him. Uh, I know we've talked about this before. You have views on the subject. What's your read on Trump's position within the party? And is this signaling anything different? Trump's position in the party is solid, especially at the grassroots level, where he early on put a lot of his own people into the state parties, which in turn went down to the county level. So his supporters are fine, but when it comes to the politics of, you know, electing people and candidates and all of that and voters. However, the movement behind Trump, uh, the hate movement, if you will, or the fascist movement, whichever you want to call it, that really um, was led by Trump, he's no longer in control of. I've said that for a while. I think these people have gone on. And the reason in part is because Trump no longer has the loudest microphone. These people were given power by Trump because he had that microphone. He was the president of the United States validating what you're feeling, the hate that you're feeling. And that platform is not as loud. You go somewhere else. So where may you go? Tucker Carlson, let's say. He's someone who is definitely pushing that agenda. Alex Jones is someone else who's putting it out there. People will look to be validated however they can with the most popular valid, uh, popular voice that there is. So they felt like their, their position is well-known and, and, and well-regarded within this zone of craziness. But Trump has lost his way with these people in the sense of they just want to keep going. And Trump doesn't can't keep up with them, frankly, because especially with him being out of office and off of Twitter. Yeah. So I think this is an important distinction because there's there, you know, you may see the narrative floating around that Donald Trump is losing control of his base or they're turning against him. Just because they're turning against him doesn't mean they're turning toward reality, right? Correct. That's a very good (laughs) distinction. They are actually probably moving to more extremism, if anything else. They turn that way because that's the only place that's amplifying how they feel and what they believe in. So, Lene, according to a Morning Consult poll, 
61% of Republicans are vaccinated, with another 4% planning to get vaccinated, and 9% uncertain. <clears throat> Vaccine skepticism among Republicans has dropped 11 points since March. So how are you thinking about whether the anti-vaccine messaging actually resonates with voters, with Republican voters? Is Trump actually reading the party better than Jones and Owens? Well, first of all, I respectfully request that you never make me talk about Alex Jones not in a plus (laughs) segment because I only have swear words for this man. This is a man who denied that the Sandy Hook shooting took place and tortured people whose kindergartners were murdered that I worked with. So I just have to start with that. Like F Alex Jones. And when we get to the plus segment, I will tell you how I really feel. Great. So putting that aside, uh, you know, I think <laughs> first of all, I'm I'm gonna mix metaphors here. Uh, you know, I think the toothpaste is out of the tube on Trumpism. That doesn't mean he can't fan the flames, but he can't put it out. He can't put the toothpaste or the fire back in wherever the thing is. <laughs> he can make things worse, but he can't make things better because it really is now taken on a movement of its own. And as we see, there are plenty of other people who are willing to step in to um, fan those flames if he's not the one doing it. So I think that's a really scary point. But to your question, Ron, about the vaccine skepticism, I don't think we should equate being vaccinated with being pro-vaccine because there are plenty of people who got themselves vaccinated and now are pretending they're anti-vaxxers. So like if you look at the number of old people, for example, people over the age of 70 that are vaccinated, it is through the roof. It's, you know, it's near, it's in, I think in the nineties in terms of percentile. And uh, a lot of those people are Trumpers who are out there talking about how they hate vaccines. So people's personal behavior and their political discussions around this are not necessarily in sync. And there are plenty of folks who went and got themselves vaccinated and now are out there spewing this stuff because that is what their social circle is talking about. But they didn't want to be in the hospital or die. Um, So I think the number of people vaccinated doesn't necessarily mean that that's the number of Republicans who um, are okay with vaccine mandates in particular. Um, and, and that's, you know, kind of another bridge. There's the optional and then there's the mandates. And, and I think that's where they're kind of stuck. So grumble, grumble, I'll get the vaccine. Just don't make me grumble, grumble. I'll get the vaccine. I won't tell anyone. I'll complain about the vaccine. I'll uh, share anti-vax stuff on Twitter uh, probably not Twitter, Facebook. Um, and then I will n- know that I myself can carry about my life with the vaccine uh, saving me. Because it's a cultural touch point. Susan, what do you make of these conversations about uh, whether Trump is still a control of the Republican base? Like, how should we be thinking about whether he has some unique ability to convince this new base of voters or if he's just hanging on while the voters drive the bus? The way I look at it is he's a well-sought-out endorsement at this point. That's his value. That's his value within the base. If you're in a Republican primary for Congress or Senate or governor or any other office, you want Donald Trump's endorsements, and it does matter there. Absolutely. There's not a better endorsement if you're in, you know, going to the right in a primary. So that's the value of Donald Trump at this point. It's not going to change for the foreseeable future. It, it just won't. He's he's the former leader or for, he's a former president and the de facto leader 
of the Republican Party right now. So when we talk about politics and elections and and the actual getting elected part versus the political conversations that people have and where they're feeling about Donald Trump if they boo him on vaccines, they're still showing up. Granted, not in as many numbers, but it's a, those are two separate things. Politically, for elective office, his endorsement is the best endorsement you can have if you're a Republican. But if you're a Republican in a swing district in a primary, you are screwed because you really don't want the endorsement, but you don't want your, your opponent in the primary to get it. And the reason you don't want his endorsement is, look at Virginia, you want to be able to play, it, play away from Trump in a swing district. Because he'll, he he is turning off, he is still turning off swing voters. So that's that's the issue that some Republicans will have. Frankly, I think it, right now it's not the worst thing because everyone has to go to the right. So the Republicans are going to put up a lot of candidates that probably won't be able to win a competitive district come this fall. That's what I'm hoping. <laughs> but you know, just. To- <laughs> To add to that, you know, Donald Trump was not ever about issues, right? This is a man who has taken 15 different positions on 70 different issues. um, And the people who love him are not looking at his policy platform. So I think Donald Trump's specific statement on a specific issue, um, including vaccines, is pretty much irrelevant compared to the personality cult that follows him or people who are now carrying the banner that, that he once carried. So I think, you know, it's, it's, I, I think I've said this on like 15 of your podcasts, but the Republican party did not have a platform in 2020. They literally right. had no policy. They didn't even bother. They yeah. did <laughs> not have policies. So I yeah. just don't think that most Republican voters are going, Oh, I don't know. Now I disagree with him on this specific policy. That's not really how it works. Yeah, at the convention in 2020, which is you know the the customary time and place for the party to reassess its goals and its uh, its agenda for national policymaking, they didn't even bother. Someone looked around and said, "Oh, we're supposed to do that." Uh, okay, and and literally just recycled last the, the previous uh, presidential elections. Platform. How can you create a platform with a, with a pr- candidate that has no core principles? I mean, that's what it's a reflection of. But there is one other thing I just want to add to the the conversation about the politics and elections and how Donald Trump will affect his base. The big question right now for 2022 is, can he get out the people who showed up just for him in 2016 and 2020? There's a lot of people that the Trump campaign, and they did this well, they found new voters. They mined for new voters in 2016 and increased that number in 2020 that were following Trump and voting for Trump. Can he get those people to the polls? Does he even say go to the polls? Because if the system's rigged, I don't know, you know, it's, a, it's right. the whole Georgia thing all over again. So that's the other question. That's, I think, the other quite unknown. We know his endorsement matters. We don't know if he could turn out people. Although if you look at the Virginia results, you know, the turnout was off the hook in Virginia, particularly in rural areas. So, and Trump wasn't on that. Ballot, but it wasn't so. for Trump. They turned out right. for the candidate and the platform and, and what they were talking about. Trump did not get those voters out. They, they did not use Trump in Virginia very much at all. 
So it's possible that uh, Trump's uh, legacy is that every right wing candidate can get those voters out now. And he is, you know, not not the catalyst. Yeah, that's the point I kind of want our listeners to, to take away here, which is while while it may be true and we can continue debating and will debating be debating, you know, to what degree Trump is losing his grip on the base, on the party, um, that doesn't necessarily I, I hate to be the you know bearer of bad news spoken calmly, but that seems to be what I do. <laughs> and uh, it, it, tr- like Trumpism is here to stay, and it's probably only going to get worse, even if the numbers shrink. Right? That's it's right. only going to metastasize and get nastier and more vitriolic as uh, as for example, more and more people sort of look to other right wing leaders who are imitating Trump and will ultimately be more successful than he was. That's my that's my concern. Yeah, and it reminds me a lot of the the gun debate because you know the NRA is um, seeing their influence wane. Um, thank you very much, Tish, Tish James in New York and yeah. others who are yeah. uh, taking down Wayne Lapierre. Um, but the um, the thing that is following in its place is Gun Owners of America, which is five ticks to the right from the NRA. So it's not that people who were NRA voters are now like, oh, maybe I'll vote for Democrats. <laughs> they're they are going even further off the deep end um, and making Wayne LaPierre look, the head of the NRA look, you know, really reasonable. Establishment. So, <laughs> he's the establishment gun guy now. So I think that is scary. And, and that's the, the vacuum we could see. Happening. And, and to further that point, Ron, I think y- you have to also look at if the Republicans, if history goes the way it tends to, you're going to see Republicans take control of the House. The number is, of how many is very important. If it's overwhelming, there's a chance that Kevin McCarthy can kind of put the, the, the extreme of the extremists to the side a little bit. Their voices will get drowned out by other members. Um, if it's close, these lunatics we'll be running the asylum and you know, maybe McCarthy gets to be speaker, but he will be, you know, owned lock, stock and barrel to go to the NRA point. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well played. um, By, by the, the extreme lunatics in the house. Speaking of extreme lunatics, Republicans across the country, are pressing state lawmakers and local officials to make school board elections partisan in order to gain more control statewide and swing them to victory in the 2022 midterms, according to Politico. In October, Tennessee lawmakers approved a measure that will allow school board candidates to list their party affiliation on the ballot, something they couldn't do before. Legislators in Arizona and Missouri are looking at similar proposals Republicans in Florida are eyeing a measure that would pave the way for partisan school board races statewide. What's happening here is really twofold. Groups, including the American Enterprise Institute, the Heritage Foundation, Manhattan Institute, and Kenneth Marcus, have all called for school board races to be moved on cycle. Now, that means that they will happen the same day as presidential and congressional elections. Right now, there's a lot of variance by state. Um, 13 are on what we call on cycle. Eight have November elections in an odd year. 16 uh, give localities discretion as to when they schedule them. 12 mandate non-November elections, according to the American Enterprise Institute. And as you know, we can all attest to, when an election happens dramatically affects turnout and the results. And 
There's also a move to have party status listed on the ballot for school board races, uh, like there is for presidential and congressional candidates. Some conservatives have argued that including party labels will give voters more information and potentially increase participation in elections. Uh, after Tennessee Governor Bill Lee signed a law in November allowing local parties to put forward candidates, all nine members of the Metro Nashville Board of Education asked the county Democrats and Republicans not to put forward a slate of candidates. They said they were motivated by a fear that partisan elections would discourage everyday people who simply want better schools from running for the school board. And the Florida State Senate's education chair, Republican Joe Gruders, pointed out that the political upsides to having partisan school board members, he said that Republican elected officials are more likely to go along with Governor Ron DeSantis' mission and anti-mask policies. So I wanted to talk about this today because of all of the controversy that we've seen over the last six, nine months at school boards. Uh, and, and given, you know, I think many of us have identified this as being a flashpoint going into 2022. These are only going to heat up. Um, it's going to be a, it's going to be a, a, so, a, a focal point for news coverage because it's so sort of incendiary, right? The, the scenes with the parents yelling at school board officials, it's, it's, um, it's sort of a microcosm of a lot of different issues that are going to come up, whether it's vaccines and mandates, school closures, um, and, and ultimately and critical race theory, cultural touch points that are sort of you know, the front of the, of the war. Lene, we've seen an increased nationalization of elections. Um, what do you think we should make of the increasing nationalization and polarization of, of local elections, especially school boards? I mean, I have to say I'm very concerned, as I think we've talked about before, about the extreme right wing attempt to take over school boards. This is going to continue to be it is why those voters turned out in Virginia um, in record numbers. Those used to be Trump voters now coming out to support their uh, crazy Trumpy school board candidate. Um, and I, I think that we have a, a lot of makeup work to do on the Democratic side to um, make sure that we're ready for those fights. However, I'm not sure that the partisanship of the races is mm. the problem. So if you are Marjorie Taylor Greene or like Marjorie Taylor Greene, you're a crazy person. Um, whether you have an R by your name or not is not the problem. You're a crazy person. So, And there are Republicans, including who are frequently on this show, that would be excellent school board members. So, um, you know, I think that the um, the, there's a lot of evidence that parties can often have a moderating influence on people because parties like to win. And there's also a lot of evidence that super low turnout elections and these off-off-year elections are really good for the extremes because they're the only ones who show up. So we've actually at Third Way done a lot of work pushing for election consolidation, mm. because if you are a regular human person who doesn't think about politics all the time, you shouldn't have to go do 16 elections in two years. You should just, you know, be able to show up um, at most once a year and make your voice known and, and you know, then go on about your life. And so I do think that um, in those elections that are higher turnout, often the center will hold better and um, and have more influence. So the, the question, I think, is whether 
partisan school board elections will change the functioning of the school board, right? Are you going to all of a sudden be very vitriolic on the school board against each other? And I would think probably not on most things. Um, I would think it probably wouldn't change that much because school boards are making lots of decisions about things that aren't really cultural. Um, and and so I would hope that, that it wouldn't lead into polarization of the decision making on the school board. Um, but, you know, just to be a little counterintuitive at the end of the year, it might not be horrible to know, oh, these are the Democrats who are running for school board because I don't really pay attention to school board races, but I don't want to elect Marjorie Taylor Greene to my school board. So how do I know which one is her? And one way to know which one is her is if there's a D by her name. Susan, I saw you nodding and listeners of Politicology will be familiar with the you know, rule of thumb that low turnout elections favor Republicans in general. Um, you've talked before on the show about how the people who are running for local offices now are the people who are going to be people running for higher office in 10 or 20 years, right? This is the bench. How do you expect partisan school board elections to change how local elected officials position themselves for careers down the line? Well, yes, I definitely agree. You need a bench and it always starts at the local level, whether it's school board or city council. Um, frankly, this is where the Democrats have fallen down on on building up their base. They seem to be more, and I think I'm taking this away from what Lene said the last time I was on with her, they tend to look at Washington instead of looking in their own backyards. They want to win the White House, but they're not really concerned about their schoolhouse. And that's what the refocus needs to be now. As far as, as partisan elections, school board elections go, don't confuse the loudest voices that you see at a meeting as representation of the entire community. This is actually kind of a unique situation where it's such a small area that candidates, if they are running in a partisan way, which means they're, they're getting people behind them, it's, it, there's organization, if you will, you can go out and reach every voter. So you aren't, you're not going to vote for that loud, crazy Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, look, look alike or sound alike. Um, you're going to vote for the person who said, this is what I care about. And I don't want to raise your school, you know, your school taxes. I want to keep our budgets in line, whatever it is. There's ways of communicating with the voters really one-on-one and, you know, all politics is local. Well, this is where it happens. Um, in some cases, for example, um, in New York, where we had school board elections that were partisan, that weren't partisan, they ran on like alternate Tuesdays of full moons on New <laughs> Year. <laughs> I mean, that, that's basically it's when so they were. New York. It's so New York. Oh. It is what it is. We are, yeah. This is also the state that has this, the board of elections is so partisan. Every job has a label Democrat or Republican, <laughs> and I'm not kidding. No, like the I press know. secretary is a Democrat. It says it like right there on the org chart. Um, it doesn't have a person's name. It just says Democrat. Um, <laughs> but partisanship exists. It's up to. I think that when you actually make them cons- school board elections not just like a thing people do as an afterthought, as things that matter and they're treated seriously, I think you get better candidates and better people running. And I couldn't agree more with Lene when she said, the more people are participating, the more center you have to go. And that's where I think, you know, we could talk about the voting rights bill and everything else. We need greater voter participation in order to 
get more centrist candidates and, and to start moving towards governance. So, Lene, is it wishful thinking to think that uh, that the increased attention being paid to school boards for cultural reasons, for the you know the the fights that are happening there, and that Susan mentioned, like the, you'll see these clips played on CNN and MSNBC, and they're not necessarily representative of of what is actually happening at school boards, but it is shaping public perception of what's happening at school boards, and I wonder if it's wishful thinking that Democrats might actually begin to focus more locally on these races that, that really matter. And by the way, we should just remind people that the decisions school boards make, whether or not to open or close schools, how they, how they go, how we uh, manage kids going back to schools has an enormous impact on the, the recovery, on our, on our economy, on our ability to return to some, you know, I'm not going to say normal, but uh, functional state again, let's just leave it there. So. Um, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and also sort of how we should be thinking about this might dissuade uh, people who don't have a real interest in pushing for or against climate policy or healthcare policy and really just want their kids to go to a good school. You know, I think that the idea it's going to dissuade people, I haven't really seen any research to that effect. I mean, there are lots of kinds of races that are nonpartisan. Um, it's all, you know, state by state and, and local decision about which have um, the party by their name or not. Uh, but it all plays out differently. So I'll give you an example. In D.C., everybody's Democratic, right? It's like a 90 percent Democratic city. And they have a set aside for a couple of city council members that are not Democratic. So people just change their party registration to run for those ones when they're really Democrats, because all the Democrat slots are wow. filled. <laughs> so, you know, I, I live mean, in DC. I didn't know it, that. It plays out. That's what Mike Bloomberg did, basically. <laughs> That's right. Right. So it plays out differently in different places. But um, I do think that it could all this attention to schools and school governance and school boards, maybe you know, the upside will be some sort of a rising up of people who want to put themselves forward to run. You know, we saw this in 2018. Like, I have never seen a more talented class of freshman members of Congress mm. than the 2018 class that came in. I mean, from Abigail Spamberger to Sochi Torres Small to Alyssa Slotkin to Mikey Sherrill to Chrissy Houlihan, like these people are dynamite. And the ones that were able to survive re-election in these pretty difficult districts are going to be leaders in the party. And they were, none of them were politicians before. They were all just going about their lives, being moms or CIA agents or both. And, <laughs> and they were, you know, really just drawn to say, wait a minute, what's going on? I think I can serve here. This is a different way that I want to serve. So hopefully, um, you know, I don't think a lot of people go around thinking about their school board, but maybe now they do. And maybe, you know, more folks say, okay, I could spend a few hours a week doing this because, um, you know, I think I have something to give here and, and this might be a way to serve and make sure that my schools are good and, and stay open. 2021. Let's talk about predictions, shall we? Man, it has been such a year. <laughs> it has been such a year. 2021 saw a lot of political prognosticating. Some of it turned out to be right. A lot of it turned out to be very wrong. Some of it comically so. So as we wrap up this last show of 2021, I wanted to talk about some of the worst political predictions 
On the morning of January 6th, conservative talk show host Hugh Hewitt appeared on Megyn Kelly's podcast and said, everything's going to be fine in the last few weeks of Trump's administration. He was proven wrong just a few hours later. Dilbert creator Scott Adams said in 2020 that if Biden was elected, Republicans would be hunted down. Uh, Joe Biden predicted that the withdrawal from Afghanistan wouldn't be anything like the fall of Saigon and that the Taliban wasn't likely to take over. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer predicted that the COVID relief bill would restore faith in democracy and stop the rise of autocrats. Only it was that easy. MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell predicted that Trump would be reinstated by president. By, by, <laughs> I'm sorry, some of these are great. <laughs> predicted that Trump would be reinstated as president after the Supreme Court overturned the 2020 election at least a dozen different times. Carl Rove predicted, and by the way, I can't ever, I can't, I'm, I can't ever see Carl Rove's name without seeing a big fat ham with glasses on it because of. <laughs> He predicted that, thank you, Stephen Colbert, that after January 6th, Trump would be tarnished for all time and incapable of running in 2024. Real world castmate turned Republican congressman turned Fox News personality. Sean Duffy predicted that Vice President Kamala Harris would become the president before the end of 2021. So there are only a few hours left for you, Madam Vice President. Former White House press secretary and Fox News host Dana Perino predicted that Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue would hold on to the Georgia Senate seats in the runoff in January. Former Congressman and Fox News personality Jason Chaffetz predicted Nancy Pelosi wouldn't have the votes to become Speaker of the House. And Benjamin Weingarten, a contributor to The Federalist, appeared on Laura Ingram's show to predict that if Democrats won the Georgia runoffs, Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. would become states. Uh, that still has not happened. <laughs> and I'm still waiting. Still very, still very much waiting. Um, okay. What were your favorite bad predictions for 2021? Susan. It's not my favorite, but it was, it's one that concerns me the most. And that was Afghanistan by Joe Biden. And the reason it concerned me was that was such a failure of intelligence, whether it's the intelligence or the decision-making based on, on, on policy, I'm not sure, but the Biden administration really did not see it coming. Their words, not mine. And that is extremely problematic. That's the thing that probably scares me most about some of these predictions um, that were made that, you know, didn't happen, the bad predictions. So I kind of, that just stands out to me as one that is scary. And it still scares me going forward as I think probably next year will be a big, heavy foreign policy year for this for this president. I think it will too. I just want to say something about the Afghanistan thing because we we covered it on the show, there was a wonderful, I think, two-part episode with, uh, with, with Molly, uh, Molly McHugh. And it's frustrating to me to see all of the attacks from the right against the administration over Afghanistan because it isn't sincere. I think that's the part that really frustrates me. And by the way, I agree. I totally, I totally agree. I mean, the, the, the conversation I had with Molly was it's gut-wrenching and what is happening to the refugees is awful. And what's happening to the people we left behind is, is it, it, it's horrifying. Um, and the prediction was terrible, right? 
But Republicans wanted to leave. Democrats wanted to leave. We've talked about this pincer of isolationism and how there isn't, there, there really isn't um, the political will from either side um, to play a role in the world on the world stage. And so the, the, the haymaking from the right feels disingenuous to me because it just feels like a way to score points when actually they wanted it to happen anyway. They wanted the withdrawal. They just didn't like how it happened and it was easy to... Am I... Am I no, I, I don't disagree with that point, but I think both things could be true at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I think that you can have Republicans doing whatever they can to take cheap shots at an administration instead of trying to offer some real insight and willing to be even get on a committee, what went wrong, and, and, and really have a conversation with, what, frankly, what senators and members of Congress are supposed to do. There was no seriousness in their critiques. And that is what I think was needed because I think everyone agrees that this could have been done and handled much better. And just one group I'd like to add to the refugees and others is the women left in Afghanistan. Um, the women who are being terrorized, who no longer can work, can no longer drive a car, can't walk down the street by themselves. So it, it's, it's frightening what happened there. And again, I'm not going to blame President Biden, but the fact that he could make that prediction when he did and how he did is what scares me. I think that my, um, you know, my worst prediction is actually similar in its kind of rosy optimism uh, by the administration about where we're going to be. And then um, the dynamic of Republicans hitting without having any really serious policy response, which is inflation. You know, for the in, the entire summer, the administration and, and others in the Democratic Party just said, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, it'll go away. It's going to go away everything's cool. Don't look over here. It's going to go away. And I think we've realized that that was not a sufficient response. <laughs> and, you know, the White House and others have have started to turn that around. Um, but that is going to be a huge issue in the midterms. And if we do not, you know, sadly, um, very few voters vote on things like Afghanistan, on foreign policy in general, but certainly on on Afghanistan, you know, the number of people who raise it in polls now is an important issue is, is in the single digits. Um, but inflation is the number one thing that people talk about. And we've got this same dynamic where, you know, um, the, the president is coming out trying to keep people calm, saying everything's going to be fine, um, and really potentially, you know, underestimating the problem at hand. Um, and I don't know if, you know, I'm not an economist. I don't know if there were any policy things um, folks could have done to get ahead of where we are. Obviously, the economy is humming on a bunch of metrics. And then on this one, it's, um, you know, it's overheating. But uh, but I think the the discussion this summer was not helpful because it was very dismissive of the concern. Um, and, and it kind of parallels the Afghanistan conversation to me. I totally agree. And it wasn't just the administration, it was the Fed. That's right. Trans transitory, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, it, I, I thought it it was it was it went from it's not happening to it's just a little bit to it's transitory to 
uh, it's good for you. That's right. That's right. We'll just <laughs> give you more money and then it'll, it'll be that good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I do have two more, which, more political yeah. ones that are my favorite yeah. worst predictions, though. One which makes me really upset and one which makes me happy. So the upset one is the idea that Republicans might finally stand up to Trump. You know, at the beginning of this year, like Mitch McConnell was on the floor criticizing Donald Trump at the beginning of this year. Remember yeah. that? I I barely yeah. do. Um, but then we had, you know, the majority of the Republican members of the House vote not to certify the election. Um, and I always um, am just shocked at my ability to be shocked continuously about how low they go. And I don't know why I still like expect some level of decency um, from someone like Kevin McCarthy. Um, he has proven not to uh, warrant that, but I did at that moment when the Capitol was being attacked and it did not happen. Um, but on my side of the aisle, there's a better story, which is, you know, a lot of people have been saying the left is taking over the Democratic Party. You know, uh, we're going to have just as extreme on the left as we do on the right. And that's just not borne out. The things that um, have been supported and passed by this administration have been um, center left, have been Biden's agenda. This is Biden's party. Um, and, you know, a, a few loud folks on Twitter um, have not been able to make their Medicare for all, Green New Deal, um, you know, list of uh, of favorite items come true, um, and we've we've really seen those more moderate Democrats um, in charge of the helm of the party and saying this is where we're going to go. And so, um, it, it as a person who works at a center left think tank, it is my constant battle to remind people that when it, the rubber hits the road, the center left is really actually driving this. And that's true electorally. That's why we had Joe Biden. That's why we have these moderates in swing districts that made the majority and gave the majority to Nancy Pelosi. Um, the Justice Democrats and Bernie Sanders have flipped exactly zero seats, zero seats ever in the Trump era and beyond, zero seats. So, you know, I know who's in charge of the party. I wish the press would stop, you know, the day after the election, I had to do an interview saying like, okay, now what is Biden going to do to satisfy the left? And I was like, what is the left going to do to satisfy well, Biden? He's in charge now, like <laughs> the day after. So it's, it's my constant battle. And I just have to say the left is taking over the Democratic Party. Mm. AOC is in charge, has really not borne out this year. It's only happening on Twitter, folks. And Twitter does not a party make. That's right. <sighs> Those are really good. I think the wildest prediction might be from 2021 that hundreds of QAnon adherents uh, who predicted that JFK Jr. would return in Dallas and can commence a new Trump administration, which, you know, God bless QAnon. All right. It's the end of the year. We're looking ahead. Midterms 2022. It's a big election year. We're going to have to talk about the midterms, but my uncontroversial prediction is that we're just going to have, what, what did we call them earlier? Um, extreme nut jobs, whatever. There's going to be more Marjorie Taylor Greens in Congress in 2022. So just, well, January when they're sworn in. Because um, it's all primary fights. So uh, <laughs> the House is going to get nuttier. Nuttier and nuttier. And they're going to have more power. So the fireworks will be brighter and more explosive. And who knows what, but 
buckle up for that. What are your biggest, boldest predictions for 2022? Susan. All right. It's kind of a hopeful wish prediction, if I may, is that the Democrats finally scrapped Build Back Better. No one knew what was in it anyway. So why not come back with a deal? You get, you cap uh, insulin at 35 bucks. You do the child tax credit. And then maybe even throw in a $15 minimum wage, which will have some Republicans who are trying to pay that populace a little back on their heels. And Work that out with Joe Manchin. All of that, except for maybe the minimum wage thing, he would he would be acceptful for. And in exchange, he also goes for the carve out. There's got to be some kind of deal and stop Build Back Better. No one knew what was in it. Just come out with the policies. Get something. Get a win early. If if it doesn't happen now, it's going to be nearly impossible for for Biden's numbers to improve enough to help the Democrats. In- I, I think that's a good I one. I agree with that last I- sentence, but disagree with everything else you said before that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we... I'm not surprised. I think the prediction is that we pass Build Back Better. And exactly to your point that no one knows what's in it. So it can be whatever <laughs> we want it to be. It can be the deal of whatever it is. So just say and what it is. You just-, just will make... It can be different than what it was that's fine, but figure out which pieces Joe Manchin is um, concerned about. And actually, what from what I've heard, the the real deal breakers were the child tax credit, which is a, a problem because I really think that should be in there, but it might need to be cut. Um, and uh, a few of the climate provisions that remain. And um, and so that it, it, that is still a huge investment that we could be making with um, you know childcare subsidies, with universal pre K, with affordable higher education, with uh, healthcare cost caps, with all of these things. And um, and so, uh, you know, I think that we can revive this bill and we can sell it as a huge middle class tax cut, bringing supply chains home and creating jobs and bringing costs down for working families. And if we can do that, then we're going to be best. You got to sell the sizzle. Please call you got to sell the sizzle, not the steak. But you got to call it a middle class tax cut. Middle class tax cut. Call it that. Scrap the language, build back better. People don't like it. It's already tainted. It's not going to be build back better. Rebrand it and just get it done. Like get it done. And at this point, I almost don't care what you put in it, but just put in three major things that are really tangible. There'll be a few add-ons, but tell the people this is these are the three things we did for you this January. Yeah, I totally agree on the three things. We're really good at writing lots of lists, but our things, this this is what I've said over and over again. I don't actually, I mean, I care, but uh, politically, I don't care what's in Build Back Better because as long as we can say it's a middle-class tax cut, it's bringing supply chains home and creating jobs, and it's bringing costs down for working families, just get one thing in each of those buckets. That's what we sell. And, you know, I care a lot about other pieces of it policy-wise, for, for me, a big focus has been this college completion fund, but that's not what we're going to I'm nodding on. violently. Uh, you got to pass the Affordable Care Act, not Obamacare. That's my prediction is that we do get uh, Build Back Better passed and we will call it Build Back Better. My prediction is also that Democrats are going to focus on the wrong parts of it in many areas. And I'm going to continue to bang my head against the wall telling them to focus on those three pieces. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be there right there with you. 
now that we're up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, uh, let's talk about what you're watching uh, outside of your predictions for 2022. Um, Lene, what stories are you watching under the radar? Well, you know, we're all really focused on redistricting in terms of how it impacts the federal elections and obviously, you know, control of the House. Um, But the other component is the state legislative races. And one of the things that I'm looking at is where are there swing states where the state legislature could have a role in either certifying or not certifying the election that we might be able to flip or keep or hold or get some sort of a foothold to make that not happen? Because, you know, the um, my friend Jessica Post at the DLCC does the yeoman's work of trying to persuade Democrats to care about state legislative races. Um, and that's always super important for so many issues I care about. But right now we're talking about, are we still going to have democracy? So that seems like it should concentrate the mind. Um, and so when we're seeing these maps come out, look at the state legislative control. Where can we make sure that we have at least one chamber that's democratic that could be a backstop to efforts to not count the votes? Um, and then the second piece of that is, um, you know, once the votes get, once the electoral votes are um, being brought to the House, um, the people that get to vote on whether or not they're going to actually count those electoral votes are the state delegations in Congress. So um, the entire, all the members of the House from California get one vote. All the members of the House from Delaware get one vote. And that's not usually how we think about votes in the House because it doesn't that work that way in any other context. So where in your state, where is there a state, or if it's in your state, you should definitely be working on it. Um, can we flip a delegation to have another pro-democracy delegation that, again, can be a backstop to folks that are trying to steal uh, I'm so glad you brought this election. up. I'm so glad you brought this up. We, we, we're going to talk about it a lot in 2021, but this is um, the hinges of democracy. I hope so. Uh, and by the way, your friend Jessica sounds like what, it's so it's so relevant. Your friend Jessica sounds like she'd be a great politicology guest. By the way, oh yes, you should have Jessica Post or many many of the lovely people at the DLCC on here. They're fantastic. Great, Susan. What I particularly like about that, you know, talking about that storyline now is that this is when you need to get the candidates. This is where That's right. you should be doing candidate recruitment, just like you would be, whether it's for a school board or for for these uh, electors. I mean, that's and, and look at states also. I just would add one thing where you need a super majority in the state legislature. Because sometimes you you may not be able to win it, but if you could prevent them from having a lot of states that require supermajorities to do big things, that may be also another place. Um, my my thing that I'm watching this week, and I'm I'm really curious why it hasn't come up, is the supply chain. There was a lot of briefing about it a few weeks ago, and the, my biggest criticism of this administration is they seem to follow the news instead of bracing people for the news, um, like uh, Lene was saying about inflation, for example. But on the supply chain, if this is if we're having this tsunami of a variant come in, not just in the US, but globally, from what I learned about the supply chain problems that or the issues that caused it, it seems like we probably are facing it again. If not, then we should be told this should be one of the the markers 
that the administration is giving updates on, not just the cases, not just the tests, but things like supply chain, other things that have that COVID has affected and people want to know about. It will help them down the road. I don't know why they're not briefing about it. I am very curious about it. It also presents an opportunity for them to steer the narrative around inflation. And I agree with Lanay. That's one of the things that I'm watching very closely. And inflation is the product of a few different things. But if they can pin the cause on supply chains, it's the best story for them, as opposed to money printing and other other con- contributing factors to uh, you know the the an abundance of money supply in the system, which drives up you know prices and demand. So I agree with you. If they can pin the narrative around inflation on the supply chains by being honest about supply chains and the causes and what we should be expecting, um, I think that's a potential win for them. But I agree. You know what? By the way, I have to. This is really. I find myself in a position of not ever wanting to say anything negative about Jen Psaki because I love her so much. I think she's just doing such a wonderful job in that role. And it's a breath of fresh air after what we've seen, not just in the Trump administration, but even in the Obama administration. And, 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 uh, and like the, the press secretaries for me over the last like eight years have, I've, I have not been able to take any of them seriously because they just lie through their teeth and it's so obvious and it's so painful to watch. And I get so frustrated. She is a, an anomaly in that in that lineage and i just think she's doing wonderful now with all of that said when she blamed rising meat prices on corporate greed uh, like a week or two ago i that was one of the worst moments for me i've seen in the i just i thought that was like terrible terrible way to answer a question um it was dismissive and 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 condescending and uh, and wrong uh, uh, to, to describe like that as the reason people are experiencing higher prices at the grocery store. So um, anyway, I hope I hope you're I, I share your wish, Susan, in that they get out in front of this and be honest with the American people and like they can actually steer the narrative in a, in a more constructive direction. for them. Go ahead, Lene. <laughs> it's so funny because the that the corporate greed point, that is where the left of the Democratic Party is trying to pin things. And so there I have seen probably 15 polls from Democratic pollsters trying to test that message over the last like six weeks because they're trying to make fetch happen. They're like, oh, we already have a thing about corporate greed. Let's just Let's do use that. that. And it doesn't work. Yeah. People don't buy it. Um, but it, it but it was crazy. It's like one of those things that one person tested and then everyone was like, oh, great. Yeah, let's do that. And it bombed through all of these, <laughs> all of these polls because people just didn't think that that was the answer. But, um, you know, the, the Bernie Sanders of the world were like, yeah, this fits into my general narrative about, you know, capitalism. So let's try that. And it just did not yeah, work. Totally agree. By the way, Jen Psaki, if you're listening, you're welcome on Politicology anytime. We'd love to have you. Uh, Susan, Lanay, before we go to the after party, aka Politicology Plus, where can everybody find you on the internet, Lanay? I'm at Lanay Erickson on Twitter, and lots of polling that I mentioned is thirdway.org. Click on the politics link. Wonderful. Susan? On Twitter at Del Percio S. And I'm at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members 
and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.